0: Open your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7 we're looking at. While you're turning, I've entitled my message, When Sorrow Produces Joy. Leadership is a big topic. I have a whole section in my library on books on leadership. And I've enjoyed reading from them and feel like many of them have been very profitable A lot of ink has been spilt on the topic of leadership. Someone has likened leadership to a man pulling a heavy object attached by a rubber band, a very large rubber band. If the band is not stretched, then the object, in this case, leadership dealing with people, if the band is not stretched, then the object never moves. If the band is stretched too much, then the band breaks And the object doesn't move. Good leadership requires keeping the band tight without breaking it and the people moving towards their goal. Paul was concerned that maybe he had overstretched that band and had jeopardized his leadership with the Corinthian believers. And uh, his relationship, he was fearful, maybe was broken with them. So we enter into a passage of scripture here in chapter 7 that's really quite intimate. As Paul is kind of assessing his relationship with the church, his strong or stern letter, his severe letter as it's sometimes called, and now their response to it. As Paul reviews the circumstances that brought the Corinthians to repentance, we understand that sorrow... Can produce joy he brought them sorrow by that severe letter but it produced joy and he talks about that someone has well said that God often uses the spades of sorrow to dig the wells of joy maybe you've experienced that in your own life the spades of sorrow are used to dig the wells of joy Well, we're in the last part of chapter six. Actually, we're reviewing, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together in the book of 2 Corinthians. Let's kind of reassess where we are and really it fits into the message of what Paul is discussing. In chapter six, starting at verse 11, going through chapter seven, verse one, Paul describes the manifestations of being in Christ. What does it look like to be in Christ? The manifestations of being in Christ. He mentions two things. Last part of chapter six, he says, we are a distinct people. He uses the word separate. We're a holy people. We're a distinct people. So first, we are a distinct people. Second, he says, we are transparent people. We're transparent with one another. We're transparent with God. And Paul is transparent with them about what has taken place. And he's transparent with them about their repentance and their renewal to relationship with the Lord and with him. The second part of chapter 7, Pastor Zach didn't read that section. It starts at verse 8 and it goes through the end of the chapter, is reconciliation within the body of Christ. So the first part is manifestations of being in Christ. Now he deals with reconciliation in the body of Christ he tells us two things again we care enough to confront and we're Christian enough to forgive so that's where we're going here this morning let's back up and look at chapter 6 verses 11 through chapter 7 verse 1 we are a distinct people and he says that he says that we're to be a holy people we're to be separate from the world matter of fact he asks five questions in these verses in verses fifteen and sixteen, the answer to which all of the answer is none. Five times he says he says, "What accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of God, of the living God, and God has said, I will dwell on them, walk with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So he says, the answer to all of these questions is none as Christians. When it comes to uh, pagan worship, when it comes to sinful compromise, we have nothing in common with them. doesn't mean that we don't have anything in common with people. Obviously, we have a lot in common with lost people. But when it comes to worship, we have nothing in common with them. We are called out, he says. By the way, that's the definition of the church. It's the Greek word you're familiar with, it: Ekklesia. Out of, ek, meaning out of, klesia, a group a gathering. In our case, the church. So we're the church that is called out of the world. You left your home this morning while some people were reading the news or watching television or sleeping in, and you felt called out to gather with the church. That's what ekklesia is, the called out one who worship the true God. Paul had said in verse 11, he says, here, O Corinthians, and I mentioned that he only uses the name of the people he's writing to when he's emotionally charged. He does it. Philippians, their love. He does it in Galatians, they were bewitched, and he does it here because of their worldly entanglements. And he says, O you Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Openly to you, our heart is wide open, but your heart is not. He says, your heart is restricted. He appeals to them. He says. I've opened my heart to you. My heart is warm towards you, but you've closed your heart to me. Your heart is cold. And he goes on to explain in these verses why their heart is cold. Because of false teachers that have ensnared them in worldly entanglements that had captured them. they had gone back to some of the pagan practices. They had believed some of the false teachers. And they had turned away from Paul. And even more importantly, they had turned away from the Lord. And their heart was closed he says, towards the Lord and towards Paul. And we talked, I think, last time that we were together of the common positions that people take in regards to the world. And you've heard me say many times that the Christian life is like walking a knife edge. It's very easy to fall off on one side or the other. And it's true when it comes to the world, a Christian's relationship to the world. On one side, you can go way over here and become an isolationist. You have no contact with the world. And when you have no contact, you have, you have really no influence. So you become an isolationist. We think of monks living out, you know, separate from the rest of society. Or you can come all the way to the other extreme and you become assimilated into the world. Assimilation, isolation, assimilation, or maybe we'd even say identification with the world. You really don't have any testimony. There they don't have any contact. Here you don't have any testimony because you're just like the world. They don't know that you're any different. So isolation, assimilation, but the Bible teaches separation. And that's why Paul says, come out from among them and be separate. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We live here, but we don't have the same philosophy and values and even certainly worship that the world has so we have to make sure that we're separate from the world and that makes us a holy people a distinct people paul says he says we are a distinct people and he wraps up that section in verses 18 and uh, of chapter 6 and Verse one of chapter seven, he says, then if we're this way, we live this way, I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters. Therefore, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the spirit and the fear of the Lord. So that's kind of the end of that section. If we're gonna be a distinct people and we become a holy people, God blesses us and we are saved But when we live a holy life, then we reap the blessings of being saved. We reap the blessing of being God's children. First, he says, manifestations of being in Christ, we're distinct people. Second, verses two through seven, we are transparent people. I don't know if you think much about this, but God's people are open and transparent to one another And we're certainly open and transparent, we should be, to the Lord about our failings. And Paul deals with that. First, Paul tells the Corinthians how he felt about them. Look at verses 2 through 4. He tells them how he felt about them. Open your hearts to us. This is the second time he said that. He says that up there in verse 12, the previous chapter. Open your heart up towards us. Be transparent with me. I've been transparent with you, we would say today. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. You know my testimony. You know my witness, Paul is saying. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die and to live together. And so great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf or about you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all of our tribulation. So first, Paul tells the Corinthians how he felt about them. He says, make room, literally, in your hearts for us. Open up your heart. Make room in your heart for us. You know, sometimes we have, I think, a skewed picture of what Paul was like. We view Paul as this uh, sermonator, you know, just went from town to town, shooting up the towns with his sermon. Paul was more than a traveling, evangelizing, preaching machine. He loved people. Paul loved the people that were one to Christ and that populated the churches. He loved people and he had a clear conscience, he says in verse 2, about his ministry with them. He had no regret. Later, he's going to talk about regret. But he had no regret in bringing the gospel to the, to the people at Corinth and bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, I used great boldness of speech. We would say it today. I was very direct with you. Boldness of speech, Paul is saying, I laid it all on the table. I said it like it was. I didn't mince my words. I was very direct with you when he confronted them about the sins in the church. And they got offended over it. Paul dealt with the incestuous relationship of a man taking his father's wife, or probably a second or third wife, but it was an incestuous relationship. He confronted them about that. He confronted them about lawsuits. They were suing one another within the church. He confronted them about the cliques. I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. He confronted them about problem after problem, and they got offended. And Paul says, I spoke very boldly to you, very directly to you. I hit the nail on the head when it came to sin. So he admits that and how he felt about them. But now he says, what does he say in the next part of verse 4? He says, great was my boldness of speech towards you. But now we could say, great is my boasting on your behalf. And now I'm filled with comfort. I confronted you about your sin And the Holy Spirit of God used that and you turned from your sin and now you're walking with the Lord and now I brag about you. I brag about how you changed. I brag about how you repented of your sin. Now I'm boasting the other churches about the Corinthian church and how they responded when they were confronted about their sin. So now he's boasting that they had repented, he says in verse 4, you know, Christians aren't perfect. If you're counting on living a perfect life after salvation, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be disappointed. Christians are not perfect. They're forgiven. And there's a big difference we're never going to be perfect this side of heaven, but we can be forgiven every time we fail, every time we fall, every time we sin. All we gotta do is go to God. It's already under the blood and restore that relationship once again. Christians aren't perfect, but they are forgiven. And he reminds them of that. So first Paul tells them how he felt about them. And then he tells them, how the Corinthians, how he felt about himself in verses five through seven. I think this is one of the reasons I love Second Corinthians. It's Paul's most self-revealing book. Kind of like draws the curtain back and says, these are the things I struggle with. This is how I feel as I serve the Lord. I'm not perfect. I'm not a super Christian. So Paul tells the Corinthians how he felt about himself. Look at verses 5 through 7. He says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, remember that's Northern Greece, Acacia is Southern Greece, and and Corinth sit right on that isthmus between the two sections of Greece. When we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fear. Outside of me, there was all this, this chaos and trouble going on. Inside, I had great stress, Paul says verse six nevertheless god who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of titus and not only by his coming but also by the consolation with which he was comforted when he visited you when he told us of your earnest desire your mourning your zeal for me so that i rejoiced all the more i was struggling but then God brought me consolation and now I'm rejoicing, hearing what has taken place in your church. First century apostolic ministry was no gravy train. It was no cakewalk. It wasn't candlelight and wines. Paul had a tough road to hoe in that first century world. Paul experienced conflicts with unbelievers. That's what he says, without Remember, he was stoned, he was whipped, he was chased, he was shipwrecked in the ocean, Uh, he fought wild beasts, He, he recorded for us some of his experiences. So he had conflicts without, he says, and he tells us that. And then he had the constant pressure or stress or burden of all the churches that he had planted and their progress in spiritual growth. He was always worried, if we could say it that way, but certainly in prayer about the churches. That's why he says, and the constant demand of all the churches is upon me. So he says, I have these things going on outside of me. I have these things that are are working within me. I'm just kind of frail right now. And Paul's admitting that. He's admitting that he's a little weary physically and, and emotionally or spiritually. He's fatigued as well. That's what he's telling them. Our human frailty makes us subject to tensions and to strains and distresses, especially if we're spiritually sensitive. We're a spiritually sensitive soul. We're concerned about other people and we're concerned about ourselves. If we're really trying to please the Lord, you know, we're mindful of those things. And Paul is putting voice to those concern he admitted his vulnerabilities remember back in chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 this is what he says: for we do not want you to be ignorant brethren of our trouble which came to us in asia that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life that's paul speaking i was about to give up Verse 9, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but only in God who raises the dead. Paul, in this book, in chapter 1 and here in chapter 7, he's revealing just how he was struggling himself, but how God brought consolation, or comfort is our word today, and ministered to him when he heard the news that the Corinthian church had repented and is now restored to fellowship. You know, a lot of people don't like to be transparent. And if you're not transparent with others, I wonder how can you ever be transparent with God? If you can't be transparent with your spouse, with your own family, admitting failures, admitting struggles, admitting fears, if you can't ever admit your own struggles, how can you ever be transparent with a perfect and holy God who already knows about all of that? They certainly piggyback on one another. They're in juxtaposition, we would say. So what does he tell us in verses six and seven? When we're transparent, when we're honest and we admit our struggle and our weakness and our frailty, what does God do? He comes to us with comfort. He says in verse six, nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast. He's talking about himself. God comforts the downcast. And many times God comforts the downcast through other people. But you can't be comforted by other people if they're not even aware that you're struggling because you're not transparent. You don't admit your failures or your weaknesses or your struggles. Many times he uses other people to do it. You can't help but sense the relief that we read in verses 6 and 7 here the relief and the encouragement that that flooded Paul's soul when Titus, if you know the backstory, Titus was sent, discharged to Corinth with the severe letter, which we do not have a copy of. That's not one of the Corinthian letters. We know that there's at least four. And the severe letter was Paul's letter that dealt strongly. Maybe we would say they perceived it as harshly with all the sins in the church. And then Titus finds Paul in Macedonia, we find out, and he brings to Paul the good news that the church at Corinth and the letter that he wrote was used by God and they have finally repented. They've dealt with their sin problem and Paul rejoices over the fact. He said, at first I regretted it. First I was worried about it, but now I rejoice, he says, Look at verse seven, and not only by his coming, Titus found Paul in Macedonia, but by his consolation, he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning over your sin, your zeal for me so that I rejoice. They had rejected Paul over his severe letter, over his blatant, direct, bold dealing with sin. But now that relationship has been restored. Paul's soul was comforted by Titus and by the fact that the Corinthians were broken over their sin and they sought to renew their relationship not only with the Lord, but of course with Paul who had brought them to faith. Now let's look at verses eight through 16. Reconciliation in the body of Christ. First of all, we care enough to confront. So Paul was kind of circling back here and explaining why he confronted them And why that has to be a part of the church life and the fruit that it brings. And we are the beneficiaries of this. And this is where I draw the term you've heard me use many times. We don't confront as Christians, we care front. We care enough about other people that we are willing to talk with them when they're out of the way. When they're not right with God, when they're out of fellowship, we care front them. So the background for Paul's comments were this. The Corinthian church had several problems. It was his problem child church, we could say. They had a number of problems. I've already mentioned them, such as incest and party spirit and the confusion that was going on at, at communion and the chaos that was taking place there. So he dispatched Titus with this severe, or it's known as the severe or stern letter. Time had elapsed and Paul became anxious. He became worried about the impact of that letter had his leadership rubber band been stretched to the point that it had snapped and he no longer had a relationship with the church he was concerned about that finally titus returns and finds paul in macedonia and he brings the good news of the church's repentance and desire for restoration and paul explains that he regretted momentarily that he had written that letter. But I think when he uses the word regret, he's talking more about that. He regretted that he had to deal with such serious sin problems amongst believers. He regretted that it was true in the church, all these things that were going on. He regretted that there were such a carnal group of so-called Christians. So let's read verses eight. Down through the end of the chapter. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, momentary regret that either he had thought he had broken the relationship or regret that he had to deal with such serious problems amongst believers. For I perceive that the same epistle that made you sorry, though only for a little while. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. I didn't hurt you, I helped you. For godly sorrow, now Paul gets into a section here that is the most descriptive and expansive description of what true repentance looks like that's found anywhere in the New Testament. So take note. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, which is never to be regretted of. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing. Observe what true repentance looks like, he's saying. That you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourself, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all these things, you prove yourself to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong. I wasn't just dealing with the guy who was in the incestuous relationship or the guy who was in the lawsuit against a brother who had done wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that for your care, that our care for you in the sight of God, that it would appear to you, you would understand that I'm concerned about the church, not just the the individual that's in sin. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort. And we rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true that you would respond, in other words. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Let's kind of work through this. We care enough to confront. So this is the background. Paul confronted them about their sin. They didn't immediately respond. Matter of fact, they rejected and they cut off all communication with Paul. So Titus delivers this severe letter, but as, as time goes on, God worked in their hearts. They did repent, and then they sent Titus back to Paul saying, hey, we, we know we were wrong, and yes, we've repented our sin. We've mourned over our sin, and we want you to know it, and we want to restore the relationship with you. That was the impact of the letter. So Paul explains that he regretted having to deal with such problems in the church, But now he was rejoicing because God used his letter to change the direction of the church, he says in verse 9. So as I said a moment ago, this is probably the most comprehensive passage in the New Testament dealing with what does repentance look like. And I've often, many times, turned to this passage in counseling. As we deal with, are you truly repentant? Is change really going to be affected? And this is the passage that we turn to. Notice what he says here. Godly sorrow manifests itself by personal repentance and by divine grace. Personal repentance on our part, divine grace coming to us as we want to get right with God. That's godly sorrow. And he distinguishes, he differentiates between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. We all get that. Godly sorrow is repentance. Worldly sorrow is regret. In the Old King James, he uses the same word, but they're different words. The New King James clarifies that. Godly sorrow is repentance, which is a personal turning from our sin, and it's accompanied by the grace of God. Worldly sorrow manifests itself by regret over troublesome circumstances. One is God-centered, one is man-centered. And a great example of that is this past week. the former governor of uh, New York, Cuomo, was arraigned, and next I think this coming week, is going to be on trial for sexual harassment, And he could become on the sex offender list. And, and this is only one person. There's, there's been over a dozen, if I'm not mistaken. And you know what? He's explained it away. I was too friendly with women. I was, you know, I did this. I'm an old timer that, you know, touches and et cetera. Listen, what he was doing is far more than that. And everybody knows it. He's never repented. He's regretted. He lost his position as governor. And now he could be on the sex offenders list. And there could be a lot more consequences that come. He regretted, but he did not repent at this point. There's worldly sorrow, which is regret because of the troublesome circumstances you find yourself in. And there's godly sorrow, which is repentance, which is a turning from our sin towards God and begging for mercy. Worldly sorrow, which is regret, drove Judas to suicide. Godly sorrow, which is repentance, restored Peter to service after he denied Christ publicly. Big difference. What are the marks of genuine repentance? I want you to notice them with me here this morning. Let's take just a moment to note each one of these words as we look at them. The first one here is the word diligence. True repentance is characterized by diligence, which means the fear of not repeating the offense again. I'm fearful, uh, I'm very diligent that I don't fall back into that. That's the word diligence. Second, is the word clearing of yourselves here in our Bible. A truly repentant person wants to clear themselves. That means they want to demonstrate that real change has taken place. In other words, look at me, evaluate me, and see that I'm not a different person, at least in this area, than I used to be. That's the word clearing of yourself to demonstrate real change. Third is the word indignation. A truly repentant person, indignation is a Bible word for anger, one of several. But indignation is describing biblical anger, shame towards our sin. In other words, I get mad at the fact that I committed that, and I'm, I'm ashamed of the fact that I did that sin, and I never want to commit it again. That's the idea behind indignation. Number four is fear. A truly repentant person is fearful, realizing how vulnerable and weak they are and susceptible they are to falling back into that. And so they look to God for grace and strength. Fear is the fourth description of true repentance. Number five is the word in our Bible, vehement desire. Vehement desire, a truly repentant person has a vehement desire. That describes a yearning for a restored relationship. The relationship has been broken, it's been damaged, and they yearn. They have a strong desire to fix that relationship, to restore that relationship, to get back right with that individual or God. That's the word vehement desire. The sixth word that's used in this passage is zeal. Zeal. A truly repentant person has a holy motivation for living. I'm motivated to live a holy life. I have a zeal to live for God, not for my sin. That's the word zeal. And the final word here is vindication in our Bible a truly repentant person wants to vindicate the situation. That word means to right the wrong, to right the wrong. Speaking of restitution, tell me what I gotta do. To right the wrong, to make things right, I'll pay for it, I'll do it, I'll say it, I'll prove to you, I'll right the wrong. That's the idea of that last word, vindication. I want to vindicate myself that God has worked in me and I'm different now and I'll behave differently. So he uses seven words to describe what true repentance are. And whether we're dealing with a child or a friend or maybe even a spouse or you know, some other kind of situation. Really, these are, are really held up like litmus tests. Maybe they won't all be there, but really these seven words are used to describe full, complete, biblical repentance. I think all of us have probably heard the word repentance is the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia means a changing of one's mind. In other words, I don't think about it the same. Now I think about it the way God thinks about it. I don't view it the same. I view it my sin now the way God views it. In matter of fact, it was often used to mean about faith in the military context. An army could be marching one way and hear the word metanoia shouted out and means turn around doing about face. That's the way we view our sin. I turn from my sin, I do an about face for my sin. I agree with God about my sin. And now I walk not in my own ways, but in God's ways. That's what true repentance is. When we have truly repented as in salvation, the scripture, the spirit changes our mind to align our thinking so it aligns with scripture. We don't think our old thoughts. We think God's thoughts. We think God's thoughts after him, as we say. So the Holy Spirit changes our mind where we realign our thinking and eventually our living so it lines up with Bible living. But it's not just Christians, or it's not just lost people, I should say, that need to repent. They need to repent to be saved. And I hope you've done that. If you haven't, There'd never be a better day and a better hour than right now to repent and come to Christ. But Christians need to repent too because our thinking gets out of whack. We're influenced by the world and our sin nature and the devil. And we have to realign our thinking. We have to turn our thinking so it lines up with scripture and then our actions as well. So we need to repent of our sin and restore fellowship with God as well. So we see from this and many other texts that sin needs to be confronted. In the Christian life, sin needs to be confronted, just like Paul in the church confronted sin. That's part of church habit, we could say. And and some people don't like that. Some people flee to churches that never deal with sin because they feel more comfortable Obviously, it can be uncomfortable for someone to put their finger on your sin or what's wrong in your life. But that's part of the job of the church. That's part of the job of the pastor, the preacher, is to deal with sin. Because if we don't, we don't grow. We don't become what God wants us to become. You know, often people will take the mindset in life, ignore it and it'll go away or learn to live with it now that may work in some context but that is not a formula for success in the christian life when it comes to sin we don't ignore it and it'll go away or we don't live with it get used to it and live with it that's a formula for disaster That's what Paul is pointing out. He confronted their sin, it changed them, they became a different body of believers and they are now rejoicing and Paul is rejoicing. So it's like a boil that has to be lanced. It's like a joint that's out of socket and needs to be reset. Sometimes we have to endure some pain to regain our health. And it's true in the spiritual realm. Sometimes it really is painful to face our sin and to deal with our sin. But if we're going to regain our spiritual health, it has to happen. As uncomfortable as it may be. So we care enough to confront. Paul deals with that. in Verses 8 through 12, and we're out of time. But verses 13 through 16, we are Christian enough to forgive. Notice how Paul responds. Paul didn't say, well, it took you long enough. Or you know how much grief you've caused me, how many letters I've had to write, how many sleepless nights I've had? Go your own way. You know, he doesn't deal with that. Paul rejoices. And we need to be Christian enough, big enough, we would say, to forgive people. That's what he deals with in verses 13 through 16. The Corinthians had correctly responded this time to Paul's appeals. No excuses, no blame shifting, no denial, no attacking Paul. They did all of that in the past, but not this time. This time they owned their sin, and as a result of that, they repented of their sin, and now they were right with God, now they were rejoicing, and now fellowship was restored with Paul as well. So let me ask you how do you respond when you're confronted? Blame shifting, excuse giving, anger, denial. When you're confronted by the word of God, whether it be reading it on your own or in a service like this, how do you respond to the word of God? We need to have a sensitive heart the way the Corinthians got to, where they finally got to, where we respond and say, God, thank you for lancing the boil. Thank you for the painful resetting of the joint. Thank you for bringing to my attention why I'm out of the way and not walking with you. Paul rejoiced in their reconciliation, and, and we've already read these verses 13 through 16, and their response to the letter, and he received them back gladly. And the whole point of church discipline Is not to kick someone out of the church and say, see you later or never see you again. The whole point of church discipline is to restore a brother or sister that is out of fellowship with God and God's people. That's the whole point. So we are Christian enough to forgive. And sometimes that's awkward. We sometimes want to hold on to the grudge, we don't want to forgive. We were hurt, we were offended they did us wrong etc Christians forgive we've been forgiven so we forgive the bible says if you've been forgiven it's your responsibility to forgive and by the way the bible tells us we even forgive even when people haven't repented we don't carry around the hurt when the moravian missionaries they were the really first europeans started the missionary movement long before it happened in England, long before it happened in America. One out of every ten Moravians went to the mission field. Some of them sold themselves into slavery so they could win the slaves that were being traded from Africa and brought to America. The Moravian missionaries were outstanding Examples of the missionary spirit. They even went as far as to go to the Eskimos or the Inuits in Alaska. They went there and they could not find a word in the Eskimo language for forgiveness. They couldn't find a word for forgiveness. So they had to link several words together into a compound phrase to get across to the Eskimo people what forgiveness, especially with God, looks like. Here's the phrase Isamugag Iju Jung Ninermik. That's a formidable mouth word, a formidable mouthful. But it means this not being able to think about it anymore. That's what forgiveness means. Not being able to think about it anymore. When we truly forgive someone, we don't regurgitate their past failures, we don't bring up their sins, we don't keep reminding them of how they hurt us, we don't think about it anymore. Just like God does with us, when we're forgiven, it's buried in the deepest seas, as far as the east is from the west, it's forgotten. So we need to be good at confessing our sin if we're going to be good Christian. And we need to get really good at forgiving others who've hurt us or offended us just as God has forgiven us. You may struggle on one end or both ends of that. But God wants us to grow in our understanding of forgiveness and what true repentance looks like. And then at forgiving others. Let's pray. Father. Thank you that you're the wonderful example you are of forgiveness. Even while you were hanging on the cross and sinners were mocking you, you prayed, God, forgive them for they know not what they do. Certainly, they knew they were crucifying a man. But they didn't understand the full ramification of that. And you forgave them even though many of them never repented. Some certainly did. Certainly, the soldiers at the foot of the cross did. At least one of the thieves did, but many never did. So open wide our heart, as Paul says to the Corinthians, towards other people. Help us to learn to be transparent with you and then with other people, admitting our needs, our frailties, our weaknesses, our failures and sins. Help us to forgive others as we have experienced forgiveness. While our heads are bowed, let me ask you just a quick question Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? Have you been forgiven? Do you know your sins are under the blood? Heaven is your home. Christ is your savior. It's all one package. If you could say, yes, pastor, I know that. I'm confident of that. Would you raise your hand right now and say, yes, I I have confidence in this very truth that you just mentioned. Christ is my savior. Heaven's my home. God bless you. Put your hand down. Maybe you couldn't raise your hand. If you couldn't, I appreciate you being honest with yourself and with the Lord and even with me. If you're not sure you're forgiven, if you're not sure you're saved, you can have that assurance today. If you'll seek myself, Pastor Zach, Pastor Jacob, Pastor Brian, any one of us out. If you'll seek us out, we'll show you how you can settle that most important of all spiritual questions. Would you do that before you leave today?